So let's turn to this passage from the Bible. And it's the story of the Good Samaritan that we've heard a thousand times. Probably most of us have heard it from the time we were children. Last week, we looked at the first part of this chapter in which we talked about the fact that we must become ambassadors for Christ. And this last part of the passage is that we must be neighbors like Christ. And that's what we're thinking about today. And the story starts with a very solemn question. And here it is in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up, stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Whatever the questionable motive of that lawyer speaking to Jesus, and it was questionable, his motive, the fact is he asked a very important, proper, right, good question to ask. It's an important question for us each to ask. In fact, you could say it is the most important question we could ask and he could ask. But it's interesting, isn't it, though it is the important question, how may I know that I have eternal life, though that is the important question. It's amazing how few people actually ask it. We ask all sorts of other questions. We never put that into words, though. We may ask, how may I get on in life? I want to make progress in life. We may say, well, I want to enjoy life. How can I enjoy life? We may say, how can I get a better life for my family? Greater financial freedom. Better health etc., etc. In some parts of the world, it's, how can I be free from war and free from need? Some people today, it's a much more basic question I might be asking, like, how may I find food for today? Because they're living in parts of the world where there's so little food, or shelter, or security in the world today. How may I survive another day? It might be for some people. For some people today, it will be, how can I endure another day of torture? Because I'm a Christian person being beaten up or tortured or raped in this time. How may I survive? And you all know that the current ISIS crisis, ISIS have now said that one of their policies, not just something that happens, but one of their policies is to rape those they overcome. And it must be terrible. And that question is a, de a, a very um, pertinent question. For some, it's even in children are in our country. How can I have freedom from these things? These are all important questions that people are asking today. Big, important questions. And I don't want to minimize any of them. In fact, it's important that we do face those questions and articulate those questions to God ourselves and uh, uh, pray for others who are trying to ask those questions. But by far the most important is how may I have eternal life? So let's start there. Let me ask you this question have you ever asked Jesus, God, that question? Lord, how can I have eternal life? Have you ever articulated it, put it into words, actually told him that? You may say, well, I don't know quite how to say it. Well, just say it like that. Have you ever put it into words? How may I have eternal life? 
This man asked the right question. Because it's so important, because it changes not just this life, not just my circumstances, how long I'm here and the difficulties I face, it changes the whole of eternity. That's why it's the most important question. The whole of eternity. And just as a sideline, I, I might just say that it was clearly one of the questions being asked in Jesus' day. And you know that because it comes out again and again and again in the New Testament. It's mentioned in the story of the... Um, Rich, rich young ruler, three times it's mentioned in the New Testament that, that question was asked. Well, it comes once at the end of Jesus' ministry, and it comes once here, which is also mentioned in three Gospels. So it is one of the most important questions, the question to ask today. And it's important we ask it. But it's not only important that we ask the question, it's important that we ask the right person when we ask the question. And this man did. He asked Jesus, how may I have eternal life? Three or four years ago, Hazel and I were in Scotland with uh, one of our children and their wider extended family, in-laws and all the rest of it and so on. And uh, in the course of that time, um, the grandmother of one of the in-laws, if I can put it that way, took us out to an evening meal at a local pub. And there were about 15 of us or something like that a long table. And uh, I found myself with Hazel sitting right opposite one person that I did not know. She was a cousin of an in-law sort of thing. I didn't know and got talking to her. A woman in her late 20s, I suppose, early 30s, maybe something like that anyway. And in conversation, she asked what I did, what my work was. And I told her that I was involved in Christian work and uh, said a little bit about it and so on. And she said, well, essentially she said, because I'm trying to find out what it, means to know God. <laughs> now, what an art question, what an opening. I'm trying to find out what it means to know God. And um, she asked it out of real sincerity. And she pulled out of her bag, which was down by her chair, two books that she was reading to show me. One of them was called The Meaning of Life, and the other one was called The Joy of Living and Dying in Peace. Both good titles, don't you think? Good titles. Both excellent titles. But the difficulty was who they were written by. They were both written by the same person whose name was Jetson, Jamfel, Nagawag, Lobsang Yeshe, Tenzin, Gayasatu. Known to you and me as the Dalai Lama of Tibet. And that was what she was reading. And you can understand why she was reading it, if she's trying to know God. But the problem is that Dalai Lama of Tibet is the leader of the Tibetan Buddhists. And the Buddhists don't even believe in eternal life. They don't believe in the eternal soul. They don't even believe in God, as we think of it. Though many believe in some form of reincarnation, or as it's properly said, the transmigration of the soul. They believe in those sorts of things. But as a result was, though she was asking a very good question, she was never going to find the answer because she asked the wrong person. She was asking the wrong person, looking at the wrong place. And he was not going to help her. It's like, you know, you're, you're told you're suffering from a, some problem or other and you need brain surgery. And you think to yourself, brain surgery, brain surgery. Well, I need somebody who's very good with their hands if they're going to tamper in my brain. Oh, I know, the garage mechanic down the road, he's very good with his hands. I'll get him to do it. 
<laughs> Nobody would ever do that sort of thing. Because they're, I mean, he's just the wrong person. Good though that person might be. But this man, he asked the right question and he asked the right person. And then notice how Jesus answered when he asked that question. Jesus' answer was this. Well, have you read the Bible? Have you read the Bible? What does it say in the law? That's what it says there in verse 26. What's written in the law? How do you read it? What have you found out by reading the Bible? Because it's there, he dignified the scriptures because it is there that the biggest answers are found, is what Jesus was saying. He didn't say, well, why don't you turn to Judaism? After all, Jesus was a Jew. He didn't say, well, why don't you turn to the church? Or turn to religious people? I mean, there are lots of scribes and Pharisees around. Why don't you turn to one of them? No, he said, why don't you turn to the scriptures? And you'll know that elsewhere it says in the scriptures that man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, what's written in God's word, the Bible, the scriptures. But there's something else here. Jesus said, not only what do you, what's written in the law, he added, how do you read it? How do you read it? I think that's interesting because he didn't say, uh, what do you think of what the Bible teaches? That wasn't the question he asked. He didn't say, well, what are your thoughts on Bible teaching? Contains some wonderful insights, doesn't it? Didn't do that at all. What he says is, how are you reading it? And in so doing, he's actually underlining two things, at least. In, it's not our opinion of the Bible that matters. It's what the Bible actually says that matters. And there are lots of people who have opinions about the Bible, but they've never actually read it, never got round to looking and seeing what it actually says. And the second thing is, finding what the Bible says is not to be found by discussing or seeking opinions of people about the Bible or reading books about the Bible. It's by reading the Bible itself. When you read the Bible itself, it begins to speak to you and give you the answers to these great questions. You begin, you begin to get insight and guidance by reading it itself. The Bible, the whole Bible, we may say, is nothing but the Bible, is, but is, is the rule of law for life and for living. And if we take the Bible as our guidebook, the pathway, it may sometimes lead us on a pathway that is narrow and hard, as Jesus said in another place. But you won't go too far astray if you're taking God's word, the Bible, as the guidance for your life to find the answers to these big questions. But once you step away from the Bible itself, to other people's opinions about the Bible, other books about the Bible, and so on, very, and what friends say about them, as soon as you start turning to those things, you'll very quickly find yourself drifting off into a sort of wilderness area because there's so many viewpoints around. It doesn't really matter what others say doesn't even really matter what other Christian friends say. In the end, it's what does God say? What does the Bible say? You know, I'm sure you, some of you will have heard the story of, the, uh, of an older lady who loved the Lord. And she was not highly educated. And somebody wanted to help her one day, and he gave her a commentary on the New Testament to read. And later on, 
the vicar called and asked, well, what do you think of the commentary you read? And she said, well, I don't know. I find I can't understand much of it until I read the Bible and the Bible explains the commentary. She was given it so that the commentary would explain the Bible, but she found it was the Bible that did the explaining. And I think that's true for us today. I love commentaries, and I read commentaries, and use commentaries, and it's a good thing, and I recommend that you do. But it's based upon what the Bible is actually saying. So read the Bible itself. And I can't think that if we spent half the time we spend reading Christian books, in reading the Bible, we'd be better off. I'm all for reading Christian books. Don't get me wrong. But it must not be as a substitute for reading the Bible itself. So Jesus says, what does the Bible say and how are you reading it? How do you read it? One of the commentators, having mentioned commentators, put this. It matters nothing who says a thing in religion, whether an ancient father or a modern bishop or a learned divine is it in the Bible? Can it be proved by the Bible? If not, it's not to be believed. It matters nothing how beautiful and clever sermons or religious books may appear. Are they in the smallest degree contrary to Scripture? If they are, they are rubbish and poison and guides of no value. What does the Bible say? This is the only rule the only measure and the gauge of religious truth. Said by J.C. Ryle, who happened to be the first bishop of Liverpool many years ago. <clears throat> Here's how Isaiah the prophet puts it, which is much more important than the commentators. Here's how Isaiah the prophet puts it in Isaiah 8, 19 and 20. When men tell you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter... Should not a purplant person inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, they have no light in them, says Isaiah. Isn't that good? Uh, we were at a conference some while back, uh, two or three years ago, and uh, it was uh, in, taking place in Kent. And uh, during an afternoon of free during the conference, we went to drive around, decided to go to Canterbury, have a look around Canterbury for an hour or so before going back to the conference. And while we were there, we decided to have a cup of tea, and we went into a cafe. And as we sat down, it was a slightly odd cafe in many ways, but still we just wanted a cup of tea in the cafe and, uh, and so on. And uh, after serving us the tea that we'd ordered and so on, the woman who was serving came up and said, um, can I... Read your palm. And I said, I beg your pardon, I didn't quite heard it. She said, yeah, can I read your palm? And I said, well, what for? She said, so that I can tell you your future. And I said to her, well, why would you want to do that? And she said, well, I'm a medium. I can consult the spirits. And they will tell me, and I will tell you your future. And so I quoted this verse to her. Why should a man consult mediums who chirp and mutter when I can consult the living God? And she said, oh, I've got no answer to that, and walked off. <laughs> that was it. That's what Isaiah is saying. 
In other words, it's what God actually reveals. And if we want to know how to have eternal life, it's important that we consult him. Not all these other things as well, but just him. And Jesus' response to his question, then he goes on to tell the story that we know so well, the story of the Good Samaritan. And I want to just underline two particular things about this story as we look at it together. First of all, some will say, as you look at the story of the Good Samaritan, um, there you are, in this story, Jesus is telling you that you can be saved by your behavior. After all, he said, um, how can I have eternal life? And uh, Jesus went on to speak to him about the Good Samaritan who did this and did that. And at the end, he says, go and do likewise. Go and do exactly what it says. So they say, well, it shows, doesn't it, that being kind, doing the right thing, being good, helping others, that's what will give you eternal life. That's what it says, isn't it? in that passage of the Bible. Because Jesus did say, do it and you'll live. So it's how you treat others that will ensure you have eternal life. That's what they say. But the answer is quite simple, actually, because we know that the rest of the New Testament, and not only the rest of the New Testament, and even this part of the... The New Testament does teach that we are not justified, not put right with God, not given eternal life, by the works of the law, that is, things that we're told to do, or being kind or helpful. We're not justified by those things. So what, what's going on here? Well, simply this. If this lawyer that came to Jesus were a, was able to do exactly what the Scripture says, namely to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself, if he was able to do that, then he would be justified. But the fact is, he couldn't. Neither can you. Neither can I. And if we can't do it, we haven't done it every moment of every day, if we can't do that, then, then how do we be justified? What do we else do we turn to? The problem is no man ever has or could. We are all failures. Or to use the Bible word, sinners. That's why God's grace is shown in what Jesus did dying for us on our behalf because we, he could do for us in dying on the cross what we could never do for ourselves because we're failures. It's God's means of rescuing us. So when Jesus says in verse 28, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live, what does it mean if it's not possible? The answer is that Jesus wanted this man to face his failure, to know that he couldn't do it, and that he couldn't be justified by his own behavior like us. Now that all leads to another point in this story. First of all, the question is whether we can have eternal life on account of our behavior. And secondly, this man who's asking the question was clearly self-obsessed. You get it again and again and again in this story. He was completely obsessed with himself. You see, at least three places, in verse 21, it says, he willing to justify himself. He wasn't going to get this from anything, anybody else. He wanted to justify himself. And then in verse 25, it says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
I want to do it. And there's also it says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the word inherit there means, it's quite specific, it means get something that I'm owed. Get something that is my right, something that is due to me. How can I get what's due to me? In other words, how could I, by my behavior, make God indebted to me so that he has to give me eternal life? That was his attitude. He was full of himself. And then thirdly, at the start of the story, verse 25 says this, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. It was quite clear that even though it was a very good question he asked, it was actually all a facade. It was all play-acting, all a front, a trick. He was trying to catch Jesus out. Now with that as a background, the lawyer persisted in asking the question when Jesus said, well, love your neighbor as yourself. And so he said, well, in that case, he said, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? If you tell me I've got to love my neighbor as myself, who is my neighbor? He was just trying to trick Jesus. And then Jesus tells this story that we're so familiar with of the Good Samaritan. And this story really hardly needs explaining, does it? I mean, it's so straightforward, so open. You don't need it explaining. But we will just look at a couple of questions from it. And it starts with this man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem, it's about a 15-mile journey. Jerusalem is 2,500 uh, feet above sea level. Jericho, 15 miles away, is 500 feet below sea level. So it's a drop of 3,000 feet in 15 miles. And the road, in fact Jericho, by the way, was, and I think still is, the lowest town, the lowest city in the whole world. But uh, he set off, this, told this story about this particular um, man that went down on that journey. Jericho was, in Bible days, said to be the place where um, priests and Levites should live. And there are probably about 12,000 of them living there at this particular time. So it would not be at all unusual to see priests and Levites on the road, going from Jerusalem to Jericho and back again, because Jerusalem, the other end of the journey, Jerusalem was where the temple was, and the priests and Levites had a rota, and they all had to, at least once a month, serve in the temple. So there were always priests and Levites going backwards and forwards on that journey. So here are a couple of things from it. First of all, it shows us in this story that love for others who are not part of our particular group is not very common. These two men who came by, the priest and the Levite, and saw the good Samaritan who'd been beat, uh, saw the, the, man, the man on the journey who'd been beaten up, they both saw him, but neither of them helped him course they should have helped him because of their profession they were priests and teachers of the law but both were too selfish or too unfeeling to help him at all now maybe they had lots of reasons for not helping maybe they spoke to themselves and said well maybe he's got it's his own it's his own fault it's his own fault i mean just how stupid can you be walking down this road by yourself that road, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, 
nobody in their right mind would travel that road by themselves. It wasn't for no reason that that road had a nickname. Jerome in the third century tells us what the nickname for that road was and it's the bloody way because so many people were beaten up. It's a very rough, rocky road. It's just in the mountains and it's just rocks and so on. This, path, this pathway, that 15 mile pathway and very rough indeed. And it's called, still is sometimes today, the bloody way. So they may have said, well, it's his own stupidity. I mean, fancy walking down that road. It's his own fault. They may have thought. They may have thought, well, yeah, he needs help, but I've got to drop to, I've got to get to Jerusalem. And um, time's going by. I haven't got time now. I'm so busy. I'm not free to help. I w wish I did have time, but I, I, I've got my other responsibilities. They may have thought, Look, if I stop and help him, I'm at risk myself. One of the favourite ploys, of course, as in lots of places, was one, one of a gang of robbers would lie on the road as if he had been injured, and when somebody stops, the others who'd been hiding in the rocks would leap out and attack him. And if, if I stop and help him, I, I'm th threatened myself. I'm going to be injured. You may have thought that. You may have thought, well... <laughs> Yeah, he needs help, but I'm not very good at first aid. I didn't get there to the course in the temple on first aid, or whatever it might be. This, this man obviously requires specialist help, and I just don't have those skills. I don't have, have, have uh, any way of helping this man. Whatever it was, whatever they said to themselves, he, they both passed by on the other side eventually. One looked and one didn't. Both passed by on the other side. Love for others, especially those who are not part of our group. It's not very common. The second thing this tells us, this story, is... Who should be helping? After all, this person who came along eventually, the story is named after him, he's known as the Good Samaritan. He was a Samaritan, and John chapter 4 tells us that the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. The priest and Levite may have had all those reasons we've just listed uh, uh, why he shouldn't help, but this Samaritan too could have had his reasons why he shouldn't help this man. I mean, he could have said, look, this is way out of my territory. This isn't Samaritan area. The Samaritan area is far north of here. I'm out of my own area. I'm in the middle of the Jewish area. Let the Jews help them. If it's, he's, a, he's a Jew. Let the Jews help them. I'm a Samaritan. It's not for me to help. Out of my territory. Let them deal with it. But he didn't. He asked no questions. He just helped. In our current crisis, that's already been mentioned this morning with the refugees and the um, people that are in such need across Europe, some of the human rights groups have been saying, they're Muslims. Where are the Muslim countries to help these people? These refugees, these migrants. Where are the Muslim countries? What about Kuwait? What about Oman? What about Qatar? What about the United Arab Republics? What about the Yemen? What about Saudi Arabia? They're all very, very rich countries. Why don't they do something? Why don't they welcome these people? They've got huge areas where people they could live and they could finance the whole thing without even noticing it. Why don't they? Or what about Russia, who's not so far away either? And some are saying that. 
this Samaritan could have said, look, there's Jews, there's all these Jews who live around here, they could deal with it. I'm not a Jew. But he didn't. This Samaritan didn't ask questions. He just helped. As one commentator put it, we must beware of excessive strictness in scrutinizing the lives of those in need. Yeah, we could find reasons. Do you remember Jesus once said, told the story in Luke 25, uh, Matthew 25, he told the story of, he said, the, there were those in prison and you visited them. There were those who were thirsty and you gave them something to drink. There were those who were hungry and you fed them. There were those with no clothes and you clothed them. And they said, well, when, when were you like that, Jesus? Oh, we never saw you like that. He said, no, but as, in as much as you've done it to one of the least of these, you've done it to me. You know, the time of Marcus Aurelius in the second century, huge plagues swept the Roman Empire. Most of those plagues were either smallpox or measles, both of which were incurable and wiped out millions of people. Second, towards the end of the second century, Marcus Aurelius died from measles in one of those plagues. And uh, he, um, during that time, they were saying that 5,000 people were dying of measles in Rome itself every single day during that epidemic. And uh, what do the Christians do in those times? How would the Christians react to those things? Well, let me read to you from the Bishop of Alexandria, Dionysius at that time. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking, uh, and, uh, by thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them, they too departed this life, but serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves. In other words, they caught it, but their ministry to others enabled some to live. Not all, but some to live. Then uh, many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. A number of elders, deacons, laymen, winning high commendation so that death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith, seems in every way the equal of martyrdom. And another bishop of that time put it this way, Cyprian from North Africa said, put it this way, these were trying exercises for us, suffering these deaths. Not deaths. They give to the mind the glory of fortitude. By contempt of death, they prepare us for the crown. Our brethren who have been freed from this world by the summons of the Lord should not be mourned, since we know that they are not lost but sent before, that in departing they lead the way, that as travellers as voyagers are wont to be, they should be longed for, not lamented, and that no occasion should be given to pagans to censure us for deser de deservedly and justly on the grounds that we grieve for those who we say are living with God. <laughs> In other words, the Christians gave themselves. They didn't go with the rest who could afford to and move out of the cities and go and live in the hills until the plague had passed. But they stayed and they ministered to people. And eventually, by the way, it's another story, eventually many of them gathered immunity because of it. 
and became much more immune to the diseases than the, the local people who try to get away from it all the time. That's another thing we won't go into now. Rather than fleeing, they stayed to help. This Samaritan had every excuse not to help, but he did. He did. And he not only did it, but it, at his own expense, he gave oil and wine, costly commodities of those days, the medications of those days, took him to the inn. Reading the story between the lines, it appears that he was known in that inn. But uh, anyway, he, perhaps he traveled often and stayed in that inn sometimes. But took him to the innkeeper and said, look after this man and here's some money and gave him some money to look after him. And he said, and by the way, if, I, well, if you use more, you go and give him whatever he needs to get him better and I'll pay when I come back again and so on. He paid out of his own expense for his recovery. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. You know, kindness should not only be in word and tongue, but in deed and in truth. Self-sacrifice, in money, in time, in trouble. There's a verse in Ephesians that says this, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And the word kindness, of course, comes from the word kin, those who are most closely related to us. Treat these others with kindness, as if they were immediate family, the closest part of your family to you. We talk about kindred spirits, kith and kin. It means those closest to us. Be kind to one another. And Jesus says, treat your neighbors like that. Go and do likewise. Preparing this this week, just thinking about what to share this week, it's been a challenge to me. And I'm sure it's been a challenge to us all. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this very simple, very straightforward story, but oh, the depth of it, oh, the power of your word. We thank you that you told this story so that we may realize afresh both of our need and realize afresh how we should be expressing that in our dealings with others. In this world, at this time, we pray that you will enable us to serve those as our neighbors, those who do live near us physically and those who are associated with us in some form or another. Help us, we show, pray to not only speak but to show the love of Christ day by day. Now, Lord, as we come to the end of our time together, we commit ourselves to you, asking for your blessing as we go our different ways. May your love and grace rest upon each one of us and remain with us for Jesus' sake. Amen.